Hello and welcome to the Cross the Crown podcast, episode 60. I'm Doug Gooden. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about making morning devotions more manly. Also, I'm going to ruin one of your favorite Bible verses. Today, it's, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And finally, we're going to talk about what elders must say to women in their church. So grab your Bible and a cup of coffee, and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. So we begin our episode 60 with the Kings section, and I have a question for you. What did you do during your quiet time this morning? I'm assuming you had one, right? I mean, every good Christian has a quiet time. We are told that repeatedly. What did you do? Did you read a portion of scripture? Did you read something out of a devotional book? Uh, What did you do? And why did you pick that to do during your devotional time. What were you hoping to accomplish? Were you trying to connect with God, trying to get your day started off right, Um, trying to stay current in your reading plan because here it is uh, February and and you're supposed to be through a certain section of scripture because you started this in uh, January and you want to keep up or maybe you had to catch up. That's the case with a lot of of dudes by this time of, uh, uh, of the year. Let me ask another question. If you miss your morning devotional time, do you feel guilty? Um, What's the purpose of our morning devotionals? Uh, That may seem like a uh, an elementary question. Of course, we want to learn about God. We want to um, spend time with God as we talk about it. My uh, my girls have both served at a navigator camp called Eagle Lake Camp here in Colorado. And uh, during their time through the summer, they have what they call TOG, uh, that's T-A-W-G, Time Alone with God. And it's you know intended to have, uh, have the, the, the counselors, the leaders make sure that they are um, not just so spent in, in the camp life that they forget their relationship with God and you know they do Bible reading and praying and that kind of thing, which is good. It's a good discipline to have. It's uh, kind of in that category of spiritual disciplines that, uh, that we talk about in the church. Um, and we're all very familiar with that concept. So again, what did you do today or what will you do later? Maybe you do your devotions later and why? What were you trying to accomplish? Well, here's what I did. Here's, uh, here's how my morning began. Uh, I read a chapter of Isaac Watts' book, The Improvement of the Mind, where he uh, has written down for us some helpful guidelines in how to be better thinkers. I read a paragraph of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he was not a Christian, that is for sure. He was a, a Stoic, um, but I find it interesting to consider what uh, what he reflected on in life and see where there's parallel and overlap with the Christian worldview uh, and things that are just true of mankind regardless of religious 
views. Uh, so I, I enjoy uh, kind of getting an understanding of a, a successful great leader in in world history, uh, what he was thinking about, kind of his his mental diary, if you will. Uh, I read a chapter of Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics because I, well, I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Uh, and then I read a chapter of Doug Wilson's Federal Husband. That was my morning devotions. Isaac Watts, Marcus Aurelius, Thomas Sowell, and Doug Wilson. And you're thinking, what's, that's not devotions. That's, that's not connecting with God. That's, um, that's not a reading plan that uh, the whole church can get behind. And you're right, it's not. Now, admittedly, my job is different from some of yours. My, I'm in the scriptures a lot as a pastor, uh, preaching through John. I spent a lot of time in John. I just finished a seminary class teaching uh, in New Covenant School of Theology. Uh, I mentor men on a variety of things uh, and teach our Sunday seminars and so on. I spent a lot of time in the Bible. And as a pastor... Uh, sometimes I have other pastors suggest to me that the uh, the study in order to prepare lessons doesn't count as devotions. In fact, I've had pastors uh, who have been emphatic, uh, as they, especially as they mentor other young pastors or new pastors. You got to make sure that uh, you don't just do your your sermon prep, but that you set aside devotional time. That you set aside time uh, to cultivate your heart and to connect with God and, and those kind of things. And my question is, why? Where would we go in scripture to support that dichotomy? That the study that we do in preparation for a lesson is less devotional, less spiritual, less valuable than whatever this thing is that we're trying to accomplish when we uh, set aside time in the morning and have our cup of coffee and and just uh, I don't know meditate or or whatever. It seems to me that uh, we can very easily slip into a sentimental devotional time where we judge the value of our devotional time based on our feelings. Do we feel connected to God? Do we feel good for having set aside this time and reading this thing and thinking about those things? So much of it's based on our, our emotions. And, you know, we can wake up in the morning and be in a great mood. Maybe we had a wonderful night's sleep. We rested well a couple days in a row, and we wake up, and we're just ready to, to get after it. And so we get out our Bible, or we get out our devotional book, and, and we read for 10 minutes, and we ponder, and man, there's some great thought that comes to our head, and we're like, yep, I'm ready to face the day for Jesus. It's going to be great. I feel really, really great. And then another morning, you didn't sleep well. There's some things heavy on your heart and your mind, things you're working through. Uh, maybe there's a... a, a disgruntled person in your life that you've had a conflict with, maybe with your wife or your kids, some, something in your home, and you're working your way through the, uh, the devotional book or the, the scripture passage you're supposed to be reading, and you're feeling nothing. And you think, uh, what a horrible devotional time. When we do that, we are, we, we've basically, even subconsciously, decided that the purpose of our devotions is to have an experience. 
And that's where we are in today's Christianity, by and large. It's so much based on sentiment and experience. I need to have an experience with God. There's even a a book and a whole study series called Experiencing God that was very popular 15 years ago or so and uh, continues to be popular in certain circles. And all of that has, has found its way into most Christian circles uh, where if we, we just think our day is not going to head a good direction if we didn't spend that time really connecting with God. I don't see the scripture exhorting us toward that kind of thing. Uh, and as a man, especially, we are called to action. Uh, we've been talking about this for months now. We are called to build the church, build our households, build the world to rule and subdue, to take charge. We are men of action. We must be after it. And therefore, it seems to me, our study and the time that we set aside to to ponder things, to meditate, to study, it should be with the end in mind. Not an experience, but transforming this world, taking charge and doing what we are called to do. Now, again, in my situation, because I, I spend so much time studying the scripture, uh, I have to make time and I need to make time to study and learn other things. You may be the opposite. You may spend so much of your time studying uh, things with business or, or things that uh, have to do with your occupation, your vocation, that you must set aside time to study the scripture. But whatever it is you're putting your mind on, whatever you're reading, it should be for a purpose. And I got to tell you, as a man, we will get motivated to study something if we know what purpose this serves, as opposed to just having some kind of experience with God. Uh, I know guys that uh, have a hard time setting aside regular time to spend in the Word, but if I give them a task like, hey, would you lead this small group? Would you teach this Sunday school lesson? Would you meet with these men and, and help them understand this portion of Scripture? Now they're motivated, and now they're driven to study, to learn, to really own it, and, and, and learn it for themselves so that they can share what they've learned with someone else. And I think there is sometimes a tacit um, devaluation of that, a discouragement toward that, that, yeah, 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 that's good, but that's, that's so you know, practical or that's so um, uh, utilitarian. It's, it's, uh, not your, it's about relationship with God. It's not about going through the motions of teaching. And I think the scripture would lean us the other way. We are constantly called to encourage one another, to teach one another, to build up one another, to point them to Christ, to edify one another. Those are all missions, purposes that we are given. And if you're not studying to do that, or if you are studying to do that, and you you consider that somehow less meaningful than having 15 minutes with a cup of coffee and, and really having some emotional experience with God, I, I think you've been shaped more by Christian culture than by the Word of God itself. Uh, we are to be equipped to complete the mission that King Jesus has given us. And and as men, we're we're to build the world, the church, and our households. And that's what should drive us to study. So uh, I'm studying, as I mentioned, I'm reading through Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, a fantastic book. In fact, if you haven't read it, I challenge you to read it. It's, It's not a small book. It's a big book. 
And it, you, you might want to go slow if you've never studied economics, but it will change the way you vote. It'll change the way that you see big business and government, and it'll help you understand what's really going on in the world of economics. Well, that matters. That matters. I'm teaching my kids economics so that they are not persuaded by the emotional manipulation of the government as politicians are constantly speaking to one particular subset of culture, of society, trying to win votes from them and saying, you know, we're for this man, we're for these people, we're for for the, the, the poor and oppressed and all that. And either they don't know what they're doing economically, or they do know, and they, they, they're simply uh, winning votes. But we as Christians, we're to love our neighbor. And there are a lot of economic rules and regulations and laws that are forced upon our nation that do not love our neighbor. It, it keeps the politician in office, but it actually creates all kinds of problems in our culture. You know, as our, our current president, President Trump, when he set in motion from, from day one in office that for every regulation that his administration uh, created, they had to get rid of two. So, you know, every, every new regulation meant you, you removed two others from, that were already on the books. Well, those regulations are a large, to a large degree responsible for the economy we're in right now. That and tax cuts uh, have, uh, have been very good for our economy. Those are widespread uh, sweeping changes that affect everyone. And now, uh, well, I won't get into all that, but the point is uh, we, we need to know those things. That matters for the world that we live in. That, has, that is a kingdom of Jesus issue that we don't enable the government to steal money from its citizens and redistribute it and give it over here and give it over there. That, that matters in the kingdom. For all the people in my church, if the government takes less of their money, they have more money to give to the work of the ministry, to Christian groups, to whatever they want to, rather than the government deciding where that money goes. That is a Christ kingdom issue. And many Americans are naive and ignorant of how economics really work. And that makes us susceptible to the manipulations of the government. That's just one, one thing I was reading this morning. Uh, reading Federal Husband, and I've been doing a lot of study on the family and headship and all those things, uh, not only for these podcasts, but um, I'm leading our men's retreat here coming up in April, and I'm formulating some ideas on how to help our men really get a hold of their, their mission in life, the things we've been talking about here, uh, the world, the church, and the household. And so I'm reading a lot of different resources from different perspectives, and of course, I'm reading the scripture as well, along with that, to, uh, to prepare for that. Am I having a, a wonderful experience with God as I do that? Yes. I'm learning more about how he designed households and husbands to function in this world. And that creates both, both a visceral response, but also very uh, helpful and clear action plans for myself, my own household, and as I edify other brothers. So what did you do this morning in your devotionals? And is it going to help you change the world for Jesus? Is it going to help you 
do something that Christ has given you to do? Or did it give you some feeling, good or bad, and then you closed the book, finished your coffee, got up, went to work, and got about your day, and really there was no connection between what you're reading and meditating on and the real world that you live in for Jesus. I would encourage you to rethink, reevaluate why you're doing what you're doing and make sure it's not just habit, it's not just what the Christian culture has imposed upon you, but that you're really seeking the ends that the scripture calls us to of bearing fruit, edifying, building others up, getting it done for Jesus. All right, the uh, shepherds section of episode 16, we're continuing our walk through Titus to see what we as pastors and elders ought to be about. And today we come to chapter two, verse three. And here Paul says to Titus, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then goes on to to verse four, which we will look at next week. So here, Paul tells Titus that uh, older women are to be reverent and godly in their behavior. Uh, Now, he doesn't define for us what older women are any more than he uh, told us what older men were. We don't know exactly who fits into this age group, but I think it's probably fair to say that it's uh, women who have older children who uh, maybe are empty nesters, those, uh, you know, we call it kind of middle age, uh, maybe in their um, 40s, 50s and beyond kind of thing. Uh, Generally, that's probably true. And it probably also has quite quite a lot to do with their spiritual maturity, not just age, but older women in the Lord. So you may have some, uh, some younger women in age who they fit the older woman category just because of their maturity. Uh, so without drawing two title lines there, uh, he says they are to be reverent. Uh, they are to be godly. The root of this word in the Greek is part of the word for uh, priesthood and temple, those kinds of things. So there's, there's something about a, a piety, um, a, uh, a devotion to the things of God, kind of if you get in mind priestly things, not, not in terms of women should be priests, th- not that, but just the, the mindset of they are ministering in the presence of God. But this is not, uh, this is not just an attitude. This is not a, um, a, a sentimental, emotional kind of thing. He says, reverent in their behavior. This is about the actions of, of women. Well, that still is a very broad term, right? What does it mean for a woman to be godly? Well, I think we can learn what he means by the contrast that he puts forth. So, reverent in behavior in contrast to two things, slander and enslavement to much wine. You see that? Uh, tell the older women they are to be reverent in their behavior in contrast to Having a um, a gossip mindset where they're talking a lot about things they shouldn't be talking about or to warn them not to be enslaved to much wine. So we can infer from this that women are tempted to these things. Women are tempted to gossip. 
they are tempted to spreading rumors, to um, expressing their dislikes and complaints. Uh, in our feminist culture, when we've been told that uh, the men oppress women over and over and over again, this makes a lot of pastors a little weak in the knees to actually think about that, to admit that women are given to these things, but, but they are. I've been in church ministry now for 23 years, and my dad was a bivocational pastor, so I guess you could say I've been around church ministry my entire life, and I've got uh, you know the women in my household growing up, the women in my household now, and uh, watching the church as a boy and as a young man, and then as a church leader for the last 23 years. Uh, I've got a lot of experience watching women and the the impact of what they do, and I can tell you it's as true today as it was in Paul's day. Uh, this is a temptation for women to talk, to talk about things that they don't know, to uh, to very freely share their likes and dislikes, to spread rumors. Uh, I can't tell you how many problems have arisen in the church. Um, because a woman gets disgruntled, she doesn't like something, and she goes and talks to other women about it, and there's this undercurrent, uh, kind of below the surface, this this rumbling that eventually um, causes great division and, and controversy in the church. Uh, and in our day, when men are so afraid to rule over their wives and to uh, to call their wives to repentance for these kinds of things, uh, the potential for women to uh, to spread this kind of, of cancer throughout the church in, in a very, um, what's the word, kind of behind the scenes way, and then uh, it, it starts to rise up and cause dissension, and their husbands and most elders are unwilling to to call them to account and to to call them to repentance, and churches split over this. Great strife. Pastors and uh, pastors are run out of office because some of the women didn't like him. Uh, of course, there's the the opportunity for false accusations and that kind of thing. But I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about uh, women causing the general opinion of other women to be negative toward a pastor or an elder, and the men won't stand up to them for fear of all the backlash that we get in our culture. And now a, a good man has been driven from this office because uh, women didn't like it. Or uh, a woman doesn't like the elder's decisions on things, and they basically manipulate their husband into leaving the church. Uh, I've had those discussions over and over again with the couples where the husband was happy to be part of the church. He loved the church. He was for it. He didn't agree with his wife on uh, on her concerns and her objections, but he just didn't have the guts to uh, stand up to her. And so they end up leaving the church because uh, he's a coward and she was unhappy. And of course, she didn't keep her unhappiness to herself. It spread around to many others. Uh, I have, I've been told by uh, women who... Um, were very concerned that the uh, the gals in their small group. So in a lot of our small groups in our church, we will uh, divide up men and women, and uh, so for a portion of it. Like in my small group, we do that. We we're together for about an hour or so when when we meet, and then we will uh, the men will go into one room and the women are another room. <coughs> Excuse me. 
for prayer, for uh, discussion, those kind of things. And I have heard, you know, one wife came and told me that uh, the women in her group are just constantly um, uh, speaking ill of their husbands and uh, and leaders in the church. And sure enough, you begin to, to expect that this is going to cause ripple effects down the way, and it does, and we have to jump in and deal with that. Uh, it's, just, it's just part of... Uh, a woman's makeup that she is tempted to to slander, to speak poorly of others, to share her frustrations and what she doesn't like in a way that's not constructive. And Paul says that is not behavior that is reverent and pious, uh, and they need to be corrected. And who is to do the correcting? Well, the husband obviously has a responsibility there, but here Paul is telling Titus, this church leader, you teach older women this. So if you are a pastor or an elder listening to this, you have a responsibility to instruct older women not to let their words fly, not to, to have loose lips, but to, to be very careful what they say, um, to speak truth, to build others up with their words, uh, to teach the younger women to do the right thing. And we'll see this next week. That is your responsibility, shepherd to stand up to women who need to be corrected and instructed in this. And it's not all just defensive. It's not all reactionary. On the uh, constructive side, we need to be willing to say this to older women, to set an example to the younger women and to lead older uh, younger women in, in how they uh, speak and how they're reverent in their behavior. That's, that's our job to instruct the older women and the older women then teach the younger women. The second thing that uh, Paul mentioned here, that in contrast to pious behavior, is uh, not enslaved to much wine. Uh, this is a bigger deal than we may think. Uh, you know, there's always been struggles with alcohol, but uh, the younger generations, it seems, uh, and maybe this is maybe this is not true, but there, it, it, at least it sort of seems this way, that uh, millennials, as we call them in that group, they love to drink wine. It's a very... It's a very popular drink, and of course, this would this would be any any substance that's a controlling substance, and, and any other form of alcohol. Um, but there is this this you know wine bars, wine and beer are both very very popular among the younger younger folks and, and women uh, as well as men. And uh, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to dissipation, right? It leads to wasting time. It leads to uh, can lead to drunkenness where women get drunk. I, we, I've been around uh, multiple situations where, uh, where women were drinking a lot every day and uh, basically became drunkards. And, uh, and that caused all kinds of problems, in some cases leading to divorce because of their other behaviors. Uh, women, and this again, this is true of men, but here Paul seems to be suggesting this is a particular uh, temptation to older women um, it leads to the first one, the, the slander, out of control mouths if a woman is drinking a lot. And it leads to all kinds of other sinful behaviors because they're out of control, because they are regularly drinking. That is not becoming a woman of God. That is, uh, that is not godly, pious behavior. And we as church leaders are given the task to instruct older women to be godly in their behavior, and to resist the temptation to drink in excess, to drink 
often and regularly that that's not what they should be doing. Their time needs to be spent in godliness, in building up others, uh, in being in self-control, being in control of their emotions, uh, serving others, serving their husbands if they're married, raising their children if they are uh, a mother, uh, edifying and building up other Christians, preaching the gospel, all of those things, which drinking regularly and habitually will get in the way of. And that is a temptation to women today. And so we as church leaders, it's our task to teach them, to instruct them, to call them out and call them to repentance and to, to support husbands when they call their wives to repentance in these things. Uh, men today need courage to stand up to women. We've got the whole world system against us. And so if you as a pastor or an elder do not have the backs of husbands when they call their wives to account, then the whole system is weakened and women can take control of things that God has not given them control over. Uh, again, this is, this is big. This is, this is huge. Uh, as elders, not only should we be teaching, but we have to come around husbands. I know husbands who they believe the right thing about the scripture, and their role as the head of the household. But they are afraid to confront their wife. They are afraid to, to sanctify her, to call her to repentance. If, if they saw their wife drinking too much, they might be comfortable going down the, um, the health route. Hey, honey, this is not healthy for you. You, know, you might become addicted, become an alcoholic. I think you're hurting yourself. I think you're, you're doing damage to you know, your liver, that kind of thing. And they might go that route, and they might encourage them to go see a a doctor or a therapist or a specialist, but there's a lot of men who know this is sin and it's their responsibility to correct their wives, but they don't have the guts to do it because they're pretty sure that she will respond poorly and they have no backing. The elders won't back them. The world certainly won't back them. And now they're just afraid of the mess this is going to create and that they're going to lose everything. We as shepherds must make sure that our men understand we have their back. We have the scripture on our side that men are the heads of their household and they're responsible to lead their wives, to make decisions for their wives, to call their wives to repentance, to sanctify them. And we need to make sure that our men understand we are for you, we're behind you. We have the weight of the authority of Christ behind us and behind you. You do the right thing with your wife and we're there for you. We have to communicate that message. Women who love Jesus want to be sanctified. They want to be godly in behavior. They don't want to uh, slander others and gossip and, and get drunk all the time. That's not what they want. We need to help them avoid those things and pursue Christ. So if you're a shepherd, Take this seriously. Make sure you find ways to communicate, to exhort the women in your church to do these things uh, with godly behavior and not with the uh, sins that are so tempting to women.
All right, for our New Covenant Theology section of episode 60, I'm going to ruin another one of your favorite Bible verses. If you've been following along in this series, you know that uh, we're taking some of the coffee cup verses, the, the placard verses, those verses that we love to quote and hang our hats on and get excited about, uh, and then we find out when we actually look at the point being made in the context, we've been wrong all along. So today... The one I hope to ruin for you is the very popular Philippians 1.6, which says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. No doubt you have heard this used, and maybe you've used it yourself, to encourage a brother or a sister who's having a rough time, but there's enough evidence in their past that uh, that God's at work, or maybe it's just a, a hopeful sentiment that we, we express, and hey, man... God began this good work in you, and he's going to be faithful to complete it. Don't be discouraged. Keep going. Keep going. I know it looks rough, or uh, I've heard this used for for someone who is struggling in the faith, someone who is uh, giving into temptation, someone who maybe is doubting uh, the gospel because of who knows what, circumstances, their disappointments because uh, God hasn't answered prayer. Uh, maybe they're tempted to a sin that they want to commit. And, uh, you know, I, for instance, parents, I've heard parents talk about this with their, their children who uh, maybe get college age and want to get involved in sexual sin. And so in order to calm their conscience, they uh, start doubting the trustworthiness of the scripture, something like that. And it's not really about the scripture. It's about them wanting to distance themselves from God and, and, and shut down their conscience so they can pursue their sin. And other well-meaning Christians have come to those parents and said, hey, 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 don't worry, don't worry. God began this good work in them. I was there when he was baptized. I saw him in the youth group. He was a, uh, a leader there. He knew he loves the Lord. Uh, God began this faithful thing in him and he will be faithful to complete it. Is that the context of Philippians? Is that what is being said here? Is this a a verse that we can make a a promise to someone uh, in those circumstances? Well, you can guess by my tone that I'm going to emphatically say no. That is not what's going on here. Uh, Let me read uh, the verses uh, 3 through 7 to catch a little bit of the context of what we're dealing with here. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says in verse 3, chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel, that's important, I'm praying for you in view of your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now, and here's verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Then verse 7, for, that's tying verse 7 to verse 6, for, here's my, my cause, my causal statement, my explanation, my reason for this, for, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. 
This is not a general platitude from the Apostle Paul that God who began something is going to finish it in you. No, no, no. This is much more specific. Paul has witnessed firsthand the Philippians' zeal for the gospel, their participation in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. That's what he says. You have defended the faith. I have watched you and listened to you. I've heard others testify to the fact that from the very first day when I came and preached the gospel to you, or whoever came and preached the gospel to you, um, you have grabbed a hold of it and you have defended it against all kinds of, uh, uh, of, of people who have opposed. Uh, you've confirmed your devotion to the gospel. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the gospel has taken root, which is evidence that God is at work in your church. I remind you, maybe, maybe it's not a reminder, maybe it's new information. The you here, he who began a good work in you, that is plural. Now, that doesn't come across very well in English. Uh, in English, the singular you and the plural you are the same, Y-O-U. But in the Greek, it's very different. Is very clear plural. Uh, we might think of this as all y'all if you're from Texas. Uh, I'm confident that he who began the work in all y'all uh, will be faithful to complete it in all y'all. He's talking about the whole the, the church, the group of people that he's writing to in Philippi, not particular individuals. And what Paul is saying is, I have reason to believe because of witnesses and because of my own witness that God has begun gospel work in your church. You believe it, you're holding to it, you, you're defending it, you're sharing it with others, you're, you're holding fast. All of these things are true. Uh, think of the seed, uh, the, the parable of the sower that Jesus taught. You know, he went out and threw seed around, the, the sower did, and some was snatched up by birds, some was choked out by the thorns and so on. It was the seed that bore fruit that, is the, that was in the good soil and different levels of fruit, but the only uh, seed that really mattered was the seed that, be, that bore fruit. Uh, that's the Christian. That's the believer. That's the true member of the kingdom. There's evidence to all those who look uh, at you that uh, you are bearing fruit, that you're, you're faithful. That's the same idea here. And Paul is saying, I've seen the seed that was, that was born in Philippi there, the seed that was planted, it is bearing fruit and lots of it. And therefore, I am confident that on the day of Christ Jesus, Jesus is going to have borne fruit in you because your gospel ministry is evidence that he's at work. And it's, it's, it's tangible, it's discernible. And he will perfect it. And that, the word Perfect there comes from the telos family of Greek words, which is used over and over and over again. It's a very important word in the New Testament, and it has to do with reaching the goal. It's not perfect in the sense of sinless, and it's it's not uh, complete in the sense of finally just comes to an end. But it's it's like the uh, the end zone uh, or the goal line in football. Uh, when you get the the football across the goal line into the end zone, you have you've completed the drive. You finish. You know you're you're done with that particular series of plays, but you're done because you have completed the goal. You've reached the goal. Uh, if you punt, you've also come to the end of that series of plays, but you didn't achieve the goal. You didn't get to the end zone. To be perfected in that series is to actually get the ball 
in the end zone. Well, that's the idea here. Paul says, I am confident because of what I have witnessed with respect to your passion and devotion to the gospel, that that is evidence that that Jesus is bearing gospel fruit in your ministry, and he will take it all the way to the end of seeing the gospel spread and seeing you remain faithful to the end, to the day of Christ Jesus. That does not mean that every single individual in the Philippian church is going to make it to the end. Paul doesn't know that. He can't know that. And that's just not how this works. But this is a big, broad statement specific to preaching and preserving the gospel and that there will be um, evangelistic fruit that endures until the day of Christ Jesus in the church of Philippi. That's the context, and that's what it means. So we don't have the, uh, the right to just grab this verse and tell somebody, I'm confident, I know that God is going to finish what he started in your life. You know, you can imagine somebody saying to a marriage that's having a hard time, and say, uh, yeah, I know this is rough and you guys are really struggling, but Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. So you can be sure she's not going to leave you. He's not going to divorce you or, or whatever the encouragement is. Um, that is a misuse of this text. It's not what is being promised here. Um, we, we must be careful to keep things in their proper context and to draw the right principles and not give people false hope. It can cast aspersions on the character of God, and it can cause people to, um, to believe something that's not true, which can sometimes cause someone to, to be a little, um, a little lazy, a little hesitant to do the hard work that's required to, uh, to, to, to change things, to finish things, uh, because someone tells them, you know, God's the one doing this and he's, he's going to complete it. Uh, no, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to, uh, to take charge of this. Uh, there's a variety of different misuses of this. Uh, we need to stick to the context and not just throw this on a coffee cup or a plaque and, uh, and give people false hope. On the other hand, uh, we can look at churches and groups of churches and groups of Christians and see clear devotion to the gospel and get, gain a lot of confidence that uh, the Spirit is at work, the Lord is bearing fruit, and that is evidence that, that they will make it to the end in their gospel ministry. So there is application for us, for sure. It's just not what most people use that verse to say. Well, that wraps up episode 60 of the Cross to Crown podcast. Again, thanks for joining me. Uh, if you would like to follow me on Twitter, my handle there is at Doug Gooden, D-O-U-G-G-O-O-D-I-N. Also, if you would like Cross to Crown Ministries on Facebook, you can keep up to date with all the things going on, uh, new resources and old resources that are being posted on the website and so on. You can go to our website, crosstocrown.org, and find a wealth of information there. There's lots of free articles. There's years worth of Bunyan conferences where John Riesinger and Fred Zaspel and D.A. Carson and Doug Moo and others, uh, Blake White, uh, others like that have uh, spoken over the years. And just a a great host of series that will help you in all different aspects of a new covenant theology and others. Uh, So check those out and uh, appreciate your listening. Share this around to anybody that you think would uh, value from it. 
And until next week, I encourage you to live intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things.